As we take up this text this morning, verses 16 to 27, you'll notice that we're at a very marked turning point in this conversation between Christ and the woman of Samaria. It's a remarkable turning point because you notice there at the 17th verse, you no longer see a woman scoffing. No longer a a woman who, who simply sees the man speaking with her at the well as some common Traveler, some, some man spouting off things that are absurd. She says of the 17th verse that she perceives him to be a prophet. And what you see right throughout these verses, really from, really from verse 16 to 26, is that Christ is drawing this woman to a point where, where she will see him all the more clearly. Not only as a prophet, but whenever she comes and tacitly asks the question, Are you the Messiah? He will give an emphatic answer. In fact, one of the most direct answers that you find Christ giving to this question in all of the Gospels. I that speak unto thee am he. And so, friend, in these verses you and I can see that This turning point largely consists with this idea that the woman now knows the one with whom she is speaking. The identity and the work of Christ is set before us so plainly. But I want you to notice that as the inspired historian gives this account to us, he includes quite a lot of dialogue, relatively speaking. He gives us not only information about how Christ will reveal himself to this woman, but he also He reveals to us how this woman exposed herself. How she showed what she was and how the Lord even went further. How the Lord knew this woman far better than she herself could have realized. And so in one sense, friend, as you look at these verses, you have two identities that come to us in very sharp focus. The identity of Christ comes to us so wonderfully plain. And the identity and the character of the woman, no less clear. But as we look at these verses together, I want you to notice that there are really three themes. In fact, you could structure these verses according to them. As you look at verses 16 and 17, you have something of the the woman's exposure. You see the scandalous life that she's led, really for the first time in this text. She is now revealed to be what she truly was. And that answers a number of questions for us. But her sin is exposed. The second thing that you'll recognize here is something of a conversation about the true worship of God. And that it ends with a focus on the identity and on the work of Messiah. Now if you hold all three of those themes together, you might ask the question, how are they related? In fact, some commentators even more recently have said, Perhaps it's that Christ is allowing this woman to lead the conversation ultimately. That there is really no unifying point here. Friend, I would submit to you that that's an error. You see, these three themes, perhaps looked at individually, may seem quite, quite, quite disconnected from one another. But if you remember the fact that this conversation begins with the subject of living water wherein Christ pulls a metaphor of refreshment, nourishment, and of an eternal kind. That he speaks of divine grace, 
that flows only through him. Well, then you recognize, friend, that these three themes that we take up in these verses are very much related. You see, what you have here in this text then is this idea. This idea that he is explaining even more clearly who he is that is offering and the character of that which he offers. All three of those themes are very plain to us. But just to show that to you very briefly, I want you to notice, friend, that Christ is directing this conversation all the way through. If you look at verse 10, you remember that Christ says to the woman there, he says, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, if you were with us, you remember that that word there, that clause, could be translated literally. If thou knewest the gift of God, namely who it is that saith to thee. Christ calls himself the gift of God, but she doesn't know him. Note how the conversation ends. It ends there in the 26th verse, where now she knows. Christ has directed this conversation right to the very place where it began. This woman began not knowing who was the gift of God, but she'll leave her water pot and tell others once she finds, once she finds the truth. No, this is a very directed conversation, wherein you and I see not only the identity of Christ, but even more clearly the character of that living water, that soul-refreshing grace that he offers. And so, friend, I want us to look at these verses in that way. And I want us to see that, really, as we look at these verses together, it shows us that souls find eternal satisfaction only in Christ. The Lord is teaching us that souls find eternal satisfaction only in Christ. And I want us to see this under three headings. I want us to see, first of all, the woman's previous failure to find the satisfaction Secondly, the form of this satisfaction, the manner in which it comes to men. And then I want us to say something here about the finding of the satisfaction. What all that involves and how Christ describes it for us in this text. So take, first of all, the woman's previous failure. If you look at verses 16 to 19, you'll notice, of course, that there's something of an abrupt change in the conversation. The woman has asked, of course, that that in a scoffing way she might draw from this living well, that she might partake of this living water, that, that she wouldn't need to come back and, and, and draw from this particular well. Now, now, friend, you recognize, of course, that is scoffing. This is a woman who is not genuinely curious. She sees a man who is unable to draw pit water himself from the well upon which he sits. And so she scoffs at the idea that this man could offer her anything, let alone such living water as Christ offered. But in verse 16, the Lord deals with her very differently. He says simply, go, go, call thy husband and come hither. Now, as you look at this text, you notice, of course, we read the end from the beginning, I suppose. We know what Christ is doing. He's bringing her to a point where he will demonstrate that he knows who she is. She may not know him, but he knows her. And he knows her well. He says to her, thou hast had five husbands. This is a woman that is manifestly scandalous. Now, it's important for me to say that we shouldn't say too much about this text because we're given precious little information. But we know this much. 
In rabbinic tradition, and that would have also included very much a part of the, the norms that belong to Samaritan culture, it was scandalous for a woman to be married three at most four times, regardless if she was widowed or if she had been divorced. This woman has been married five times. And so in Samaritan society and in Jewish society, she would have been regarded as a scandalous woman. Furthermore, it stands to reason, given what we know about the ideas of divorce that were alive and well in this time, that this woman was likely not widowed five times. Um, it is very much likely the case that, that she was divorced, and perhaps not all of the times, but many of them. You remember that the Lord himself abrades the culture, saying that there was too easy, too little restriction on divorce. And so very likely that's what we're seeing here. Now I want you to notice just a few things from that. I want you to notice, first of all, that she has persistently sought these marriages. She has never at one point said that she would persist either in her widowhood or in her state of divorce. For five times, contrary to what would have been societally acceptable, she persists to find a husband. Now, why is that significant? I want to submit to you, without reading into the text further than we should, that that's significant because of the very next clause, wherein Christ shows that he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. What you see here is a woman who has persistently sought something from her fellow creature. Many times others would have given up, but this woman has not. And she has sacrificed much in this pursuit. She has taken upon herself the position of an outcast, even among Samaritans. And even now, she is still pursuing it, and even at such great social cost. What does this teach us? Well, friend, I would submit to you again, without drawing any inferences from the text that we ought not, that here the Lord is drawing attention to the fact that this is a restless woman. And I mean that in terms of her soul. She is a restless soul, and she must be because she, as we already know, has not partaken of these living waters. Christ speaks of a satisfaction that comes by partaking of his living water that lasts to all of eternity. And this woman manifestly in her life, written as it were right upon her forehead, has never found that kind of satisfaction. In fact, she has persisted in the pursuit of it to a degree that many others would not have. This woman has never tasted of such satisfying, such soul-nourishing grace. Here you have a picture that souls indeed are restless until they rest in Christ. And friend, that's written right throughout the scriptures. This is why the Lord calls the weary and the heavy laden to themselves. Whether they are sensibly weary and heavy laden or not is not an issue. It's important to note that distinction. The truth of the matter is, all souls are restless until they rest in Christ. All souls are weary and heavy laden until they receive rest from his hand whether it's in a very pronounced, invisible way like this woman or not, the truth still stands.
You remember how the prophet Isaiah communicates this to us. Speaking of the idolater, he says, He feedeth on ashes. He feedeth on ashes. And why? Because a deceived heart hath turned him aside. There you find that the idolater depicted as one who, who is engaged in his idolatry to a great degree. But he's blind on the fact that he finds no nourishment from them. It's a very graphic way of saying that he's found no satisfaction from these things. He feedeth on ashes. These things will not satisfy. The prophet Jeremiah says very much the same thing. When he abrades God's people for doing likewise, he says, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There's a graphic, very powerful illustration that you and I can draw uh, for this truth from our own society. If you've ever talked with somebody who has been caught in substance abuse, they'll tell you that one thing that they always search for is their first high. In other words, what they find is is that after they've been initiated into that lifestyle, all that they crave is more and more and more, and they're always chasing, and they're always sacrificing, and they're always longing for, again, that first high. Friend, while none of us here are engaged in substance abuse, I want you to know that all of our souls follow a very similar pattern. And until we rest in Christ, we would for all of eternity. This woman very clearly is such a restless soul. And here Christ offers this woman that alone, which truly satisfies unto eternity. All of her searches have failed to this point. But what of the form or the manner in which the satisfaction comes? I want you to notice here at the 20th verse. Note what the woman says. She says, thou art a prophet. She perceives now that the one before her is not as she imagined him to be. Uh, Simply someone who, who, who who is filled with absurd ideas and boastful. No, no, this is a prophet of God. And then she comes to this point where she says, Ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now I want you to notice, friend, that this is not a digression, this is not a diversion. There are some who I think quite wrongly see this as a woman trying to get out from under the sense of guilt that she feels for now being exposed. That's not how we're to read this text at all. She names here Christ a prophet. And immediately, friend, what should that conjure in the minds of somebody who's a Samaritan? If if you have even a very cursory understanding of the past, how did the prophets of God come to the northern tribes? Did they not come carrying with them that burden that that, that these people were to turn away from from their false altars and and turn away and turn, turn back to the true God and in the manner which He Himself had prescribed? If this is a prophet, 
any Samaritan should expect that the conversation is now immediately going to turn to purity and worship. I would just remind you to go back to the Old Testament time and again, friend. When the prophets went to the northern tribes, this was habitually their message. Take just what King Abijah says to them before. These ones, those ones in the north, they had made out their own priesthood. They had made their own rival altars. While Judah, they had the temple of God and the Levites. The prophets were urging them to purity and worship, to turn to the living God in the manner in which he prescribed. But I want you to notice, friend, that that's the woman's expectation. But she receives so much more than what she expected. She receives that. She receives a statement about the worship of God and its purity. But she also receives so much more. I want you to notice, first of all, the Lord then responds by saying that the hour cometh there in verse 21, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. We'll see this in just a moment, but he's speaking here about a change in the covenant administration. In other words, a change in which the church of God would approach the Lord. But I want you to notice, friend, that he, he goes much further than the external forms of worship. She's expecting something about, some conversation about altars, rival temples, forms of worship, and an ordered priesthood. But I want you to notice what here Christ does. He says, ye worship, ye know not what. Now friend, I want you to meditate just for a moment on how staggering a claim that is. The Samaritan is expecting that Christ is going to, at this moment, tell her that Samaritan worship is wrong in its manner. Christ says that it's not only the manner that is wrong. The object of your worship you do not know. It's a staggering move. And it's one that we shouldn't neglect. The Samaritans erred in the manner and in the object of their worship. To which Christ reminds her that salvation is of the Jews. The church underage, there, preserved, albeit with defection, nonetheless, essentially preserved in Judah, they had true worship and true doctrine because those two things go together. This is one of the main points of this text. Christ is reminding her that, that there where the true worship of God is found, the true knowledge of the object of that worship might be expected. They go together. And then he tells her of the object of true worship. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, friend, it's staggering here that he doesn't talk about altars and temples. He goes directly to the object of one's devotion. And he says that because of who God is, men must worship him spiritually and truly. Now, the word truly there is not supposed to be said opposed to falsehood. The idea of truth there is the idea of substance. Two texts illustrate this from the New Testament. The law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. Hebrews 10.1 
Colossians 2.17, as we read, a shadow of things to come, but the body or the substance is of Christ. He's not here speaking of externals. What the Lord here is saying is, those who worship God must do so spiritually and looking to that which is the substance, that which is the truth of divine worship. My friend, how do we hold all of this together? Well, I want you to notice, friend, that in this text, and we can't forget this, Christ does not negate externals in worship. In fact, he reinforces that the Samaritans had erred in externals as well. But we need to hold this text in its broader context. This is a woman who needs to find living water. And this discussion on worship has driven her to see the only God who can give it. This shows us a woman who never sought God spiritually and so never found it so. Never tasted of these fountains which Christ now offers. My friend, what this shows us then is that souls that rest are those that approach God spiritually. Now, Just very briefly, what do I mean by that? Uh, This evening, I'm going to be taking up, God willing, um, five verses from the book of Isaiah that are considered the locus classicus for this particular doctrine. Uh, The five verses we take up in Isaiah, Isaiah 1, are perhaps the greatest and most clearest exposition of this truth in the word of God. Uh, So come tonight. But what I do want to stress is that the word of God with with Clarity, right throughout, teaches the same thing. That men must approach God spiritually. That that simply approaching him physically, visibly, or with words is insufficient. Because, as Christ reminds us, God is a spirit and would have him worship spiritually. Psalm 50, as we sing, Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Are you offering these kinds of things with such a low view of God as though he needed these things? Well, then you're not approaching him spiritually. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, shall I continue to to increase, to augment my sacrifices to appease him? Well, externals do. Is that the way that God would have us approach him? And the answer, of course, is no. The prophets with one voice, and again, we'll see this, God willing, this evening, with one voice have always cried that formal worship, that is worship rendered without the soul, is an abomination to the Lord. It is always by him rejected. No, friend, what Christ here requires is worship that is truly spiritual. And that means two things. That means, first of all, of course, that it is from the soul of man. He's not just going through the motions emptily, mindlessly. But in the New Testament, it's so very important to remember that spiritual does not just mean, as so many today would take it, somebody who is thinking in spiritual ways. No, friends, spiritual in the New Testament sense is always someone whose soul has been enlivened by the Spirit of God. The New Testament knows no other kind of spirituality. 
It is always a spirit-revived soul that is described spiritual. And so those who worship, right, says Christ, are those who have been revived by the Spirit of God. And friend, that reminds us, does it not, of what we found in John 3. In many ways, though, I think we divide those two texts too, too sharply. They are saying the same thing. Christ is offering the same thing. That only through him are men made truly spiritual, revived, and born from above. One of our forebears illustrates this truth, speaking on this very text. He says, to render our worship spiritual, we should, before every engagement in it, implore the actual presence of the Spirit, without which we are not able to send forth one spiritual breath or groan, but be wind-bound like a ship without a gale, and our worship be no better than carnal. This woman finds that only those only who have tasted this living water are those who have been revived by the Spirit of God. Only they worship God in spirit and in truth. But thirdly and finally, friend, I want you to notice how the finding of this rest is described for us in this text. Take there, starting at verse 25. You find the woman saying thus, she says, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Now this is an incredibly powerful text. First of all, the Samaritans had some expectation of a coming Christ. But you remember, as I said to you now two weeks ago, the Samaritans rejected all of the prophets. They held only to the Torah, uh, to, the five books of, to the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And what you see here, friend, is not a reference to the messianic figure that would have been believed in by the Samaritans. He was called Tachev. That's not what she calls Christ. She calls him Messiah. If you go through the five books of Moses, you'll find that there is, of course, references to the coming Christ, but he's never called Messiah. You will look to the prophets to find him there called the Anointed One. What you and I see here is that this is a woman who's a very atypical Samaritan. She's among the people who have rejected a great portion of God's word. And yet she speaks of the coming Christ after the language of the prophets. Moreover, not only does she speak of the coming Christ in this way, but but you notice her expectation is great. This is not like Elijah. He will not be just another prophet, so to speak. He will not be even another Moses. Note what she says there. He will tell us all things. This is a Samaritan with a high Christology that is deeply informed by something well without her own tradition as a Samaritan. And so she is really asking here a question. Are you indeed this one? It's an ingenious way to ask it. But it is certainly that question to which Christ responds powerfully, I that speak unto thee am he. Now, friend, why does she make that jump? Why does she go from seeing Christ as a prophet to now seeing him as Messiah? It goes back to what the Lord has already said. 
He says here that the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And he's speaking there, as we've said before, of a change in administration. What he is saying is he's not denying at all the illegitimacy of Samaritan worship. Remember, he reaffirms that it was with the Jews that the manner and object of worship was truly found. But he is saying something else. He is saying that from his first advent, things will change dramatically. And that's why it's important to see the word truth there as referring to the substance. Friend, even among the Jews, they had the shadows of things to come. But they didn't have the substance, as it were, that made the shadow on the wall. They saw the the silhouette of Christ in their festival days and in their sacrifices and in all of those things. But when the substance came, then all of that is to be done away because we see Christ more clearly. Friend, that's how New Testament worship is described. And it's a dangerous thing whenever, well, it's a dangerous thing whenever men and women want to go back to shadows of their own making and think that that's how they'll access the substance that is Christ. No, this woman recognizes that Christ is bringing about a change of administration where the church will see God in a way she's not seen him before. That she will see more clearly than she has ever seen. And the only one who could affect that change was Messiah. She knew it. Now friend, as you look at this text, I want you to go back just for a moment to the 23rd verse. The 23rd verse and the last line. Where there Christ says, the Father seeketh such to worship him. Now, the antecedent there are those who are spiritual worshipers, who have been enlivened by the Spirit of God. And Christ says the Father seeks such to worship him. But that raises two questions. The first question is, who does the Father find that could be so described? Friend, the answer is straightforward, isn't it? Only those whom he himself revives. Only those whom he makes spiritually alive could be so described. Only those who are born from above can be so named. So what does that text mean? He's saying here that the Father seeks such, and friend, that means he seeks to make such who would worship him spiritually. The second question that raises is, well then, who was seeking whom? Who was seeking whom? The woman was seeking satisfaction, evidently, as her life clearly indicates, as all sinners' lives do. But if this woman has made a truly spiritual soul, what does this text mean? It means that the Father was seeking her. And what you find in this text then so powerfully is the truth that souls are sought by God through Christ. It's curious, isn't it? Staggering, really, how Christ describes the work of the Father. 
Theologically, he might have said, the Father demands such to worship him. It would, be, it would be substantially the same to say that the Father requires. But that's not what he says. He uses language that's staggering. He says, the Father seeketh such. It's the same idea whenever he's, the, there Christ describes the Son of Man as one who's seeking to save that which was lost. Christ says here, the Father is seeking to make men and women spiritual worshipers. So seeking to give them this living water. I want us to step back from this text as we close. And I want us to see, friend, that one of the greatest illustrations that I can give to you of this truth is what you have in front of you. Christ is there in the midday You remember the sixth hour when no respectable woman would have gone to draw water. This woman comes and Christ speaks with her, an obvious outcast among Samaritans. And then after she scoffs, after she berates him, one time after another, He persists in drawing on the conversation. And then, friend, the conversation goes on so long that his disciples come back, as you find in verse 27, that they marveled that he talked with the woman. And why did they marvel? They marveled because she was evidently an outcast, evidently a disreputable woman. But Christ is there speaking with her midday. Well, friend, in light of that 23rd verse, what are you supposed to make of this? Well, there you see an illustration of the son going about his father's work. There you see Christ seeking, seeking to make this woman indeed a spiritual worshiper, to give her of that living water, that she might know the true object of right religion, that she might be utterly satisfied into everlasting years. Friend, here you have a picture, as John 1 reminds us, of the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, who has declared the Father, not only with words, but even as we see it here, and the manner in which he takes with sinners. As we close Friend, I want you to notice that there are a number of questions that come to us. The first is, friend, have we found that the cisterns, the wells that this world offers, that they are broken? Have we found that there is to be no lasting satisfaction in the creatures? You know, if a man was not endowed with a soul, if he was like the brute beast, you could expect that he would be pleased, satisfied with with sensuality, with other creatures. But whenever man is endowed with a soul, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes reminds us that God has put the world in his heart, the idea is that eternity is that which the soul of man is inclined toward. And friend, the creatures cannot satisfy. They cannot. You remember perhaps, but in, in, the, in ancient history it is legendary that 
Alexander the Great wept. And why did he weep? Because he said, I have no more worlds to conquer. Alexander had taken so much, and yet still he found it not satisfying. He found that even if he had all of the empires of the world under his control, it would not suffice. Such is the soul of man. Only an infinite God. Only He can satisfy. And so, friend, have you found that to be the case? Have you found that creatures, even favorable providences, are insufficient of themselves to satisfy souls? But the second question that comes to us is do we see, friend, the manner in which here Christ deals with sinners? Perhaps one of the most remarkable elements of this text is just his patience. She scoffs at him and he dismisses, overlooks the whole. Her sins are exposed, but how incredibly gently. She's a woman disreputable, a woman outcast, a woman no one else would want to be seen in public with. And Christ tarries in conversation with her in midday. Friend, what you see in this then is that Christ patiently deals even with outcasts as he calls them to take of that which he offers. Let their past scandal and stubbornness be howsoever great a height. Still, you find here a Christ going about his Father's business, seeking such to worship him. Friend, if all of that is true, and as we close, then the exhortation is straightforward. If this is the same Christ who is alive today, one who offers that alone which can satisfy immortal souls, if this is the same Christ who deals even with patient, even with such great patience, the outcasts and the offscoring of the world, well then, friend, what greater incentives do we need to forsake the broken wells of this world and to take only from his hand that which truly satisfies? May it be, friend, that as we leave this place this afternoon, that our gaze is fixed on him and that our hope for everlasting satisfaction found only in the unsearchable riches of Christ. Amen.